If you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Feel free to keep it. Luke chapter 13, as you're turning there, just a couple announcements this week. We turned in, you'll notice all of the Christmas child boxes are gone, you know, the big stack. Um, it turns out, I think we, it was right around 75 boxes that were turned in. The one thing I was really excited about um, when she called back, she said the majority of our boxes are actually going to Mongolia and at, like Mongolia and China. And I thought that was, it's uncanny in God's providence how he would you know, that we're, we're so committed to Mongolia and the Mannings and, and that, our, you know, a lot of our boxes would go there. And I called Josh and Heidi, who are in Arizona on furlough for a couple more months um, until the baby comes. And he said, oh, if they go to Mongolia, I know the national guy who receives all of the Operation Christmas Child boxes that, that come through there. And so I'm like, oh, how cool. So if you tracked your box, kind of follow it and let me know if it goes to Mongol- if it ended up in Mongolia. I'm praying that my two boxes end up there because there's a likelihood that when I go visit Mongolia the next time that I'll try to connect with the kids that we, um, our church kind of sponsored. So I thought that would be really cool if that happens. Um, while we're talking or I'm talking about Josh and Heidi Manning, I have a prayer request. We're going to take a, just a quick time to pray for them. Um, Heidi is, is 28 weeks along in her pregnancy. On earlier this week, she went into, um, this is, I got to get my terms right, early labor or something. She started going into labor, and it, she's at 28 weeks, and that's not a good thing. And so the doctor has um, put her on bed rest, but she's homeschooling four children and is 28 weeks, and, and they're all very type A personalities. And so Josh asked that we would um, be praying for them that that Heidi would actually rest and that they would all that the family would learn to adapt to help her kind of get some rest. And so I just wanted us to pray for them right now um, during this time. So let's pray. Father, I do thank you and praise you for um, Josh and Heidi. Lord, I just I just thank you, Lord, for the blessing that they are to me and to our church. And Father, we lift them up to you um, as they're on furlough right now from Mongolia. Um, we pray, Lord, that um, that as they're home with their family uh, through Thanksgiving and Christmas, um, Lord, I pray that you would just bless their time of fellowship with their family, that you would encourage them. Um, we thank you uh, for this extended furlough, Lord, through the, the unexpected um, child that is coming along. Um, and so, Father, we just pray for them during this time. Lord, we pray especially for the baby, um, that he or she that's in there at 28 weeks, Lord, we pray that um, they would stay put and just uh, continue uh, growing and developing, Lord, until it is the right time um, for them to, to, to come into the world. Father, I pray that you would just help Josh and Heidi to, to slow down and, and to take it easy. We pray for the younger kids, Lord, that they would, they would understand, Lord. And um, Lord, we just we lift them up to you now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So keep them in your prayers. Um, tonight is this, the, the, this Thanksgiving celebration is one of my favorite things we do at the church. And it's not just because there's going to be a ton of turkey. Like, I don't even know what the poundage. Hilda alone said she has about 40 pounds of turkey ready to go. So we're going to have some meats. There's going to be ham, pies, potatoes, all of the fix it. Like, I just love it for, I mean, I love it for the food. I'm not going to sit up here and act like I don't. But the thing I really enjoy about tonight is, is, is I think it's a, we'll get a, we get a little bit of slice of heaven um, 
I think in our church, there's about three continents represented. It's in English and Spanish. While I don't speak much Spanish, and on our side of the church, we're the English side, um, that in heaven, everybody that speaks every language will be there worshiping God. And so this is a time um, while we're sort of separated because of language and culture, we're united in Christ. And so to be able to come together, and we're going to pack this place. It's going to be like sardines in here. And we have two cultures coming together. We're saying foods be here at five so that we can get it ready to go. We're shooting to start at six, but that's our culture. Our cultures, you show five minutes. You're, if you're five minutes early, you're late. The Spanish culture, if you show, or the Hispanic, Latino culture, if you show up on time, that's rude. And so we're, we're trying to meet somewhere in the middle, you know. I think Alberto told them that we're going to meet at 3 o'clock. And so, <laughs> you know, so they might get here about 6.15. And uh, it's, a, it's just a great time of fellowship. My father-in-law will do worship in English and Spanish. My father-in-law is coming up to give a message in English and Spanish. And, and on our side of the church, I really want us to, to make the extended effort to try to sit next to somebody who speaks Spanish because for them, it's very intimidating. There are so few of them. You know, there's like 30 of them and, and they don't speak our language and there's a lot of cultural and contextual reasons why they're intimidated being around an English-speaking only crowd. And so I want to put the responsibility in our hands to display the love of Christ and to, to really reach out. Hola. Can everybody say hola? Hola. Como estas? Estoy bien. You say estoy bien. And then that's about as far as my Spanish goes. We're moving on. I do better in lean. But if you just make some extensions, you know, it, it's a great, great time. Um, immediately following the service, just by a little bit of announcement, there are Bibles and um, hymnals underneath the chair. All of those need to go out. They're going to go back to the Sunday school room that has like the map on the world. We're going to pull the tables out of there. We're going to stack all the Bibles and hymnals back in that room. And then all of the chairs are going to go back in that room. And so that's, going to be kind of like a mad dash after the service. And so that's kind of the rough plan. There's going to be a lot of stuff to do between now and the time we eat, but there, there, there's a lot of opportunities that to serve in kind of volleys. So getting the chairs out will be the first volley, but then there's going to be some downtime. And that's why I'm having the football game up there, because I figure if the football game's on the screen, like during those lulls, people won't wander off, you know, <laughs> like I'll stick around. So, so it's going to be a great night. Come on out, enjoy yourselves, and, and you'll be blessed. I think today's message should be a shorter message to, just because of the text and, and uh, what we have going on today. So pray for me that I would actually be able to communicate it quickly and effectively. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. I thank you for this day. I thank you for... Uh, our, our church family, Lord, we pray um, now, Lord, as we open up your scriptures, Father, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text, that we would rightly understand it, Lord, that it would come alive to us, that the story would be real, that we would hear the impact of, of Jesus's words. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would soften our heart. Lord, we all are in different places. And so, Lord, we ask um, that you would do a work in our lives, that you would help us um, to hear what you have to say to us. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. 
And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will like all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. And Father, we do thank you for this story. Lord, I pray that you would help me uh, to teach it in a way that's faithful um, to you and how you recorded it. And I ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. So this story is really simple. Like, like, I feel like I struggled a little bit the last service, but, but it really is a simple message that deals with uh, seeing calamity when we see something bad happen to somebody and we think, oh, maybe God was striking judgment on them. Or if you have something bad happen to you and you think, oh, is God punishing me? Um, I think we've been there, or at least I've struggled with this. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that's, that's absolutely not the case. But the reason we sort of think this is because our worldview, the way we kind of evaluate our circumstances is sort of upside down. I think what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to flip-flop things so that instead of looking at others and looking at the world around us and, and elevating ourselves and thinking, oh, they're such sinners and I'm so righteous, what, what he's trying to do is to get us to flip it that we, we live life like, wow, like my sin is so horrible before God. And God is so gracious that he's given me another moment, that he's given me this life, that he hasn't judged me. Because when we start looking at our own life honestly before God and we realize who God is, it sort of changes everything. Hold your place in Luke and head over to, to Psalms, Psalm chapter 8. It sort of struck me that when we covered a few of the Psalms last year, in Psalm chapter 8, I think this is what God wants in our hearts. David reaches place in his life. And I think this is what God's trying to do in our life. And so in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, the first four verses here, David starts out with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And verses 3 and 4 are the key. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. So he says, when I look at creation, when I look at the moon and the stars and, and realize that you did this with your fingertips, that all of creation, everything that we know, it took nothing of God's power to create all of this. And in verse 4 he says, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. 
So kind of going back to Luke here, like this heart of David, like recognizing who we are and the majesty and magnitude of who God is, like we're so insignificant, but that God loves us and he pours his grace upon us and his mercy is everlasting towards us. That, that instead of going around judging others and looking like puffing ourselves up in light of other people, like our heart before God is like, man, God has so redeemed me and has so saved me and that, that I have this life. I have so much to be thankful for. And I think that's why Thanksgiving is, uh, this is the holiday, in my opinion, that stands above all other holidays when it comes to Christianity. Because thankfulness is something that should mark a Christian's life. And so we get to our story here in chapter 13 of Luke. And it starts out, now on the same occasion, I have to kind of pause here. See, Jesus, when he speaks and the things he did were so deep and so rich, in order for us to go through them, it takes a little bit of time. I think we've been in this section for about six weeks or so. I didn't actually tally it up. But when Luke writes now on the same occasion, well, what's this occasion? The occasion starts back in Luke chapter 11, verses 37. And Jesus was asked to come over to lunch and have lunch with a Pharisee. Jesus goes to lunch. He walks in. He jumps down and sits down at the table. But he doesn't go through all of their religious practices. The Young's literal translation says that he didn't baptize himself before he ate. It had nothing to do with sort of a hygiene of of washing the hands. So he's sitting at the table, and the scribes and the Pharisees are kind of sitting back and in their minds thinking, what are we supposed to do? He's contaminated the table. He hasn't done the stuff. They're thinking all of the things of judgment against Jesus. Jesus, being God, knows their thoughts and begins to address the Pharisees. He confronts them on three points, after which the scribe stands up and says, excuse me, Jesus, but when you say these things, you start to offend us also. Speaking of the scribes, Jesus says, I'm sorry, did I miss you guys too? So I'm going to go to town on you. And so that he lists three points where he's furious. By, by, the end of, by the end of his dealing with the scribes, he says, God has entrusted you with the scriptures to lead people to repentance in God, that they would come into relationship with God. But you scribes and Pharisees didn't enter into God's graciousness. And not only that, that people who are trying to find God, you're like linebackers taking them out on their way in. You create all of these religious rules that you don't even attempt to keep on your own, but you weigh down the people. And lunch never happened. Jesus gets up, and as he's getting up, Luke records that from this point, the scribes and the Pharisees started to begin a a crusade against Jesus to have him executed. Luke chapter 11 through whenever the end is, I think it's 26 chapters, maybe it's 21, 22, I'm cheating right now, 24. So 24 chapters. So, So from Luke chapter 11 to about Luke chapter 20, this is sort of, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the, the Passover celebration. It takes a huge portion of Luke, but in, it's happening very quickly in real time. So they're plotting against Jesus. They would eventually kill Jesus. As Jesus walks out of this scribe's house, he's met with a huge crowd of people. The beginning of chapter 12, I think, verse 1 says that thousands upon thousands of people had gotten word of where Jesus was. They were coming upon each other. They're stepping upon each other. They're trampling each other. As Jesus comes out to this huge crowd, he takes his 12 disciples and he begins teaching them. And as he's teaching them, I imagine Jesus with like his nostrils flaring 
is righteousness, anger, like at what the, the Pharisees inscribed had turned his word into. And he warns them. He says, first off, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This pretending to be something that you are on the outside, acting like you're, you're so religious and so righteous and so perfect, when on the inside you're rotten and you're trying to lord over people, this, this righteous, this, this religion that has nothing to do with a relationship with God. He goes on to warn them of greed and to be careful with how you view possessions. And I think that the essence of that was don't take your eyes off God, who is the one who blesses us with stuff. We often take our eyes off God and look at the stuff that we'd like. And he, he guards against the, the old phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. See, that's man's idea of success. But Jesus says, guard yourselves from that. He then goes on to say, be ready for the son of man is coming back. This was the first advent. Jesus is there, but he starts speaking about his second coming. And he says, be ready. The day of the Lord is coming. He's going to come like a thief in the night. And so you look forward to the end when we all will stand before God and waiting for that day, knowing that we'll stand before God and give an account that will affect how you live your lives leading up to that day. I said it for me in my own life. It sure does humble me knowing that one day I will stand before God. Makes me easy. It makes it a whole lot easier when I make a mistake and get mad at Anna to say, I'm sorry. She'll even admit, I say sorry a whole lot faster than I used to when we first got married. Like, and it's not just lip service. It's literally, it's not that I'm a better person. It's that my fear of God has increased out of his love for me. I'm going to stand before him. So it helps me stay humble. He's still got a lot of work left to do. But Jesus' point is be ready. And if you realize that that day is going to come a whole lot faster than you realize, it'll sure affect how you live your life today. He then, last week, we looked at the, my fire and brimstone message. Jesus, like then, like is angry. He's like, I am so ready to bring fire upon the world, to cast judgment on the world, that I'm so fed up with this sinfulness, with his back to the Pharisee and scribe's house. He says, I'm ready to cast judgment. But he says, but I have a baptism to undergo. He knew he was heading to the cross. He knew judgment was necessary for the sin of man. But he, the man who judges or the God who judges is the one who stands in our place. He said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to undergo the baptism where the world's sin is placed upon me. And so there's great love of Christ that we fail to understand. And so as he's sharing about this, this is where chapter 13 sort of opens up. This all happened very quickly, but we've kind of spread it out. And so in verse, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now on the same occasion, this is the occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. There's... Other than Luke, there's no other place in the scripture or in historical documents that share about this incident. That, that shouldn't concern us much because Pilate that did this was a cruel, ruthless man. And he killed so many people that historians just weren't documenting every single incident. But just to, just to kind of help you understand, here is Israel. Not all of it. I kind of chopped it down. But right here where my little laser is, that's the northern half of the Dead Sea. If you go west from the tip of the Dead Sea, there's Jerusalem. Um, 
Jerusalem is a region that was ruled by um, Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman, like the governor of that area. Galilee, if we travel north, there's a river, the Jordan River, that flows from north to south, ties into the Sea of Galilee up here. Um, Jesus is from Nazareth. This whole section up here is referred to as the Galilee region. Pontius Pilate had no authority up in this area. This area was sort of a hotbed for zealous nuts, religious people to go to um, basically to try to spur up movements to overthrow Rome. Pontius Pilate couldn't do anything, but essentially this group is what most people believe is they came down to Jerusalem for the celebration, for the Passover. They're making their sacrifices. They were lay people. Once, once they came into Pontius Pilate's jurisdiction, it was thought that these people were trying to overthrow Pontius Pilate. So when they were in there, he had them executed in the temple while they were making their sacrifices. This is something that clearly happened as Jesus was speaking, like, like maybe a week or two weeks that day, few days before, but in that immediate area, it was something that everybody knew about. And so they asked, the, they, they kind of say, well, what about these people? Now, in order to handle this text, I didn't do it this way there in the first service, but I think it will be easier for me if I go to the second point here. If you go to, or the second incident in verse four. So there's the one incident. Then there's the second incident that Jesus brings up in verse four, Jesus says, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? So he asked this question. He references another one was a, a sort of Pontius Pilate who killed all of these people. Then there was another incident. Nobody other than here knows about it. There's 18 people in a building and a tower the tower collapses. All of these people died. And Jesus says, do you think that these are worse culprits, that they're greater sinners than those of you who live in Jerusalem? And if you live in Jerusalem, that you're righteous and you're religious and God has more favor upon you. Is that what you guys think? Now, you'll notice that Jesus's response in verse three and in verse five referencing these both they are identical word for word how he responds he says to both of these situations he says i tell you no but unless you repent you will all likewise perish so he gives the same answer to both and as i reflect on the story and trying to wrestle through it the reality is that we're not going to look at these two stories but it but during the time the thought was, if calamity had come your way, God is judging you. In John chapter 9, there's a story where Jesus is walking into a town or a village. He has all of the disciples, and there's a blind man there. And one of his disciples asked Jesus, says, or they asked him, is this man blind because of his sin or because of the sin of his parents? Like that it was, this guy has a blindness because of this. And Jesus responds, says, he's not blind for any of these reasons. He's blind so that the glory of God could be manifested in his life. And at that point, Jesus, I think it's a guy where Jesus spit into the mud, made it, but I could have it wrong. But Jesus cured his blindness uh, one way or the other uh, in that story. It reminds me of the book of Job. We all love Job. 
Job was a man who had probably the most calamity of any man in human history. I don't know if any man in human history, but he suffered a great deal. All of his family was lost, all of his wealth. His dear friends, as they're observing him, they take a bad rap, but really they were still by his side the whole time. Throughout the book of Job, the one thing that Job's friends keep coming back to, are you sure you don't have sin in your life that, you're, that you haven't admitted to us? Because certainly God is doing this to you to punish you. That was the only logical conclusion that they could reach. But if you read the whole book of Job and you get the behind the scenes of what happened, we realize that Satan saw Job, saw that he was a godly man, loved the Lord, and he goes to God and says, you know what, I bet I can get him to curse your name. And saying, God says to Satan, okay, just spare his life. Go to town. And so the whole book, like Job gets all of this because God's proud of him, right? This is, this is God is so proud of Job and knows that Job loves him that he can just lay Satan loose in his life. But all of his friends kind of like, oh, this the calamities had to happen because they're bad. I've only... Two instances in my life come to mind where I've even remotely come to what we see in Luke 13. The, the question that's asked, these people that, were, that, that, these people that were killed by Pontius Pilate as they're making sacrifices, and this Tower of um, Siloam where the 18 people died, that the idea is this bad thing happened to them. Certainly God has to be punishing them. Just earlier, Jesus said that he's ready to like cast fire upon the earth in judgment. And so I think that these people are asking this or bringing this up. Now, is this God's fire being cast upon the earth right now? When I was in the Navy, it was in the late, well, in the late 90s, two trips, well, one trip I made. I passed through Phuket, Thailand. And in Phuket, Thailand, I love the Thai people. The Thai people are some of the sweetest people, the most gentle spirits. But as you go through Phuket, and if you go there with a bunch of Navy and Marine guys, you see a sort of ugliness that I've never seen before in my life. It, it, it was, that there aren't words to quantify. Like, I have a hard time trying to express the things I saw there. But prostitution there is not really viewed like it is here. It's it's. It was more like a way of life and not frowned upon. You would go to a restaurant, and if this was a restaurant, there would be a glass wall here with chairs, and there would be ladies in the chairs with numbers on them that were owned by the bar that was a part of the menu. There was just, it was just heartbreaking to see this. And it wasn't frowned upon in the culture. It wasn't like here there's sort of, a looking down upon there, it was more of like, this is just, this is just, it is. And I remember walking through just being heartbroken, seeing little five-year-old girls with bouquet of roses. Like, I don't really remember the one girl's name, but I remember I bought her a whole bouquet and I said, you just have to stay with me the whole night. And so we just kind of played tag or whatever through the streets. But I could see that this, this is where her life was leading to prostitution. And it was just heartbreaking. Then the next place I went was New Orleans. No offense if you're from New Orleans. I didn't go there on Mardi Gras. I'm not bashing Mardi Gras per se. I don't really know enough about it. But I remember I walked the streets of, like, I think it's Bourbon Street. Is that New Orleans? Is that the right place? And I just remember walking through there and just kind of feeling dirty, just kind of like being heartbroken over the things that I saw. And I don't remember particularly what I saw. 
I just kind of remember going, man, this, I just don't feel right. And like, I just, I just, uh, I kind of had the hippie jibbies. And then a few years went by after those two places and the tsunami went through Phuket, wiped out Phuket, Thailand. I mean, when the tsunami hit Thailand, Phuket was wiped off the, like it was just wiped out. I mean, it was cleared out. It's not, I think they've rebuilt a little bit today, but for the most part, in the near couple of years, Phuket was just gone. And then it was shortly after that with the hurricane with, with New Orleans being flooded. And I remember struggling, thinking, is this God's judgment? And I couldn't, like, I, I mean, I just couldn't go to the place. I, I, I couldn't say, oh, yeah, this is God's judgment. I'm not like some people that can, you know, feel comfortable saying stuff like that. But I just remember going, but what I saw was so horrible. Like, maybe it could have been God's judgment. I don't know. But I remember when those, those two events happened, I was struggling internally. And I think this is what Jesus is dealing with in this passage. And his response isn't, don't think of those people, like in my own existence, it's kind of even between the last message and now I'm getting sort of clarity in my mind, is what I, what I see God saying is, don't look down at these places if it was judgment, because don't say that you're better than them and they're worse than you, like their sin is greater than your sin. What he says is, see that, take warning, repent, or you'll perish in the same way. And that's kind of a sobering sort of, like, it's not saying necessarily that they're worse than you, but to realize how short life is. As a sheriff chaplain and Escondido SWAT team chaplain, I'm off, like, I see, I'm often called, if I'm called, it's because something horrible happened. And there are horrible stuff that happened because somebody made a stupid decision. Those are a little bit easier to deal with. But then there's like the 18 people who are in a tower that just collapsed. And it's like, whoa, there's sort of this, like nobody's promised today. Like, and I was like, I don't want to go too far. I have a distorted sort of mind. I can, I can what if a bunch of bad situations, but like, like our roof is pretty stable as far as I know, but it could just totally collapse on us. Like this whole building could just collapse on us. And we could all die. I, I'm pretty sure it's good. Like, I'm not, like, don't, don't know. Like, it's all stable as far as I know. But I hope my, you guys get my point, right? Like, like there's just stuff, and you, you, you read the newspaper, and you're like, here's innocent person just minding their own business. And some freak accident, like the accelerator gets stuck down, and then they're gone. And what I think Jesus is saying is, we all are going to face Jesus one day. We're going to stand before him. And what he wants is he came, he lived his life so that we would recognize who he is, recognize his great love for us, that we would accept him as savior. The Bible says that when you believe that the spirit comes upon you, that you're sealed in the spirit to the day of judgment, that when we stand before God, our sin has been paid for because in the previous passage, when Jesus was ready to basically bring fire upon the earth, he said, but I have to undergo my baptism, that he had to go to the cross, that he loved us so much that every single person in this room and in this world, Jesus on the cross, when he was dying, his sin was being placed upon him. And he stood in our place. He was our substitute that in him, we, we have forgiveness. We have hope. We have security. So Jesus wants us 
to surrender to him, to give him our lives. It's not about doing a bunch of good works. Like Dave Bishop, he's not here today. Dave Bishop is an Escondido police officer. He's on the SWAT team. He like just loves, he's funny because he just talks about God all the time. We'll be on like high speed chases and he's talking about just the graciousness of God. I'm like, Dave, can you stop talking about God? I'm just trying to pray right now because I'm scared for my life. You know, like I'm like, I'm just trying to, like, Dave, can we just post, can you just drive and focus because I'll be praying and I, because I don't want to talk about this right now because I just want to get home safely. And it wasn't that bad. Okay. It was like. I, I want to be able to keep doing these things. So it's like, it wasn't really that bad. It was, forgot she's in the service. You know, we're good. Um, but like when it comes to repentance, he gets like, like anytime I talk about repentance, it's like, ooh. Because he really struggled, I guess, as an early Christian. When he, his understanding was that repentance meant you, you have your sinful life, you turn from your sin, you start living your life, you do all of this good stuff. And once you've cleared the bar, then God will accept you and forgive you. And so he's like, I just couldn't do it because I just kept failing and kept struggling and kept, there's no way. And I'm like, well, that's not my understanding of repentance. Well, repentance and lifestyle will, I think, come in a Christian's life where your life has changed. The battle is in your mind. And the place where you come to recognize Jesus as Savior Like just in believing in Christ, that's repentance. Because what you're saying is the way I viewed life, the way I viewed my understanding before God, the way I viewed everything was off. And I need to change my thinking and surrender to God and make that step. And then God will start doing a work, which then ties into this parable that he tells this parable. And it just, there's no explanation. Verses six through nine. It just is this. He told a parable. And in the story in verse 11, kind of, it's another day. He heals a lady on the Sabbath. There's no real explanation, so it's kind of for us to figure out. And this is the parable. It says, and he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree, which he had planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. I identify with this guy. So here's this guy. He plants a tree, a fig tree. Three years goes by. Every year the springtime happens and the flowers come out on the tree and he's waiting for his figs. They don't come. Year one. Year two, they don't come. Year three, they don't come. He's getting furious. In my house, when we moved into our property, there was like no trees. And so in January of 2008, we went to the store and we bought a bunch of bare root fruit trees, like 11 of them. I have all of these trees. The one tree I really cared about, the one I really wanted, the apricot tree, because I love apricots. Like, I love apricots. And so I planted the apricot tree. We're entering January would be the fourth year. Do you want to know how many apricots I've gotten? Zero. Zero. Like, Furious. And every time I drive over to the Frederick's house, like as you enter their gate to the left, there's an apricot tree. And that thing spits out so many apricots. And I'm like telling them, I'm like, all week, this apricot tree has been taunting me. And they're like, well, if it makes you feel any better, we never, the birds and all the animals kind of get to the fruit before us. I'm like, but that's not the tree's fault. The tree's doing its job. 
So I threatened during the last service that maybe this winter what I'm going to do is to go in the middle of the night, dig out their tree and put my tree in its place. But it's, it's just because you plant it, you love it, you water it, you do all of the right stuff. You add fertilizer and all it's supposed to do is produce little apricots that you can munch on. And it hasn't done it for me. And in this, this guy's so angry that in the middle of verse seven, he tells the guy who cares for the property, cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? <laughs> like it's wasting ground space. Just chop it down. And so here, th- this whole parable, there's a couple different ways you can go. I think that the original context of what Jesus is speaking about is the context of Israel. That God had planted Israel to be a light into the world. And that the Pharisees and scribes who are still behind his back had taken the word of God, had used it to, to build up their own personal like kingdom, their own empire, their own strength, their own holding people down, getting a bunch of money. And they'd so missed what God had intended of Israel that they would be used to lead people to Christ, to enter relationship and Jesus is telling this parable like, listen, my patience is running out. We've cultivated God has. If you read the Old Testament, like I would encourage you to read through the Bible. And if you can power through, like even like I had a skimming level just for the sake of like flipping pages and like reading the like even the subheadings, what you'll see is Israel sinned, God disciplined, God restored. Israel sinned. <laughs> God disciplined, God restored. It's like this cycle all through the Old Testament that happens over and over and over again. And Jesus is saying, God keeps fertilizing Israel, keeps doing all this stuff, and Israel never starts producing fruit, so he's going to chop it down. And we see that in other passages in the New Testament, that the the, the olive tree of Israel was chopped down and the, the church was grafted in. And God is not done with Israel, but Israel, we need to pray for Israel. And then he continues, so, okay, let alone, sir, if it bears fruit next year, do not cut it down. So this vine dresser, this, this, or the vine dresser, the vineyard, the guy who is like in charge of the trees said, don't cut it down right now. Give it one more year. I'll dig a hole around it. I'll water it. I'll give it fertilizer. I'll care for it. If it starts producing fruit next year, great. We leave it alone. If it doesn't, we'll chop it down. And when I look at this passage where I want to end with, which I am early, is go to Galatians chapter 5. Dealing with a personal note, how does this whole fruit tie in to all of this? Jesus says, no, I tell you, but repent or you'll perish in the same manner. Then he tells this parable about the fig tree. I think he's addressing Israel, but as far as the Christian life, I think there's application for us as individuals and how we relate to God. Every single person in this room, I guarantee you, and I can say, looking in the eye, God has gone out of his way over and over and over and over again, reaching you and trying to help you become more like him. If you're in this room, I can also tell you God is not done with you. God loves you. He's patient with you. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. I've seen in the Christian life, there are people who, a lot of people, not so much in this church, but so many people are care about chasing like gifts that God has given. There are spiritual gifts. Gifts that God has given to people in order to do the work that he's called us to do. People love gifts. Like they want to do, oh, God has gifted me to do this. But all I see in the scripture, God doesn't want us to like chase after gifts. He wants us to display the fruit of the spirit. This is what he's pruning in our life.
And in Galatians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 16. I'll, I'll kind of move quickly through this. But the thing I love about the Bible is so often we as people, we want to look at others. And I can't tell you how many sermons I've sat through that I've said or I've heard people say to me, Oh, pastor, that was a great message. I only wish so-and-so was here so they could have heard it. (laughs) Hey, we all been there? Like, oh, this would be so great if that person was just here. But the reality is, is I need to hear this message. Like that God wants us to examine our own lives, not to be worried about the person that's sitting next to you or the person that's not here. And so the fruit of the Spirit, verse 16, it begins, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, if you write in your Bible, circle the R, highlight it. The deeds of the flesh, these are plural, these are individual things, these are, these are like buffet items. You can choose one, you can choose all of them. They are independent of each other. He lists immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I love that. Things like these. Like this is not an exhaustive list. There are all kinds of things. I don't, Paul would run out of paper if he had to list every little item that qualified for things of the flesh. He says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That line bothers me, to be totally honest with you. Will the, the people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I totally believe in the security of the believer. They're without a question. I'm not quite sure when I became a Christian in my own life. I struggled. I... Um, but a, a big mile marker in my life was when a dear friend of mine, who is from Atlanta, I'd been going to church. I, like, I started, I think I became a Christian. But that was Sunday nights. And I could tell you where the dollar beer specials were on Monday night for Monday night football. I could tell you the Tuesday night special places, the Wednesday night special places, Thursday night special places, Friday night places, Saturday night places. And then by the time Saturday was over, I could recruit on Sunday to catch church at seven o'clock at night that Sunday night. And so somehow I don't exactly remember the details. It was a long time ago, but I was driving somewhere. I saw that the Padres were in Atlanta. So my dear friend, my drinking buddy, he's from Atlanta. And we somehow in our drunkenness were able to buy tickets to Atlanta to go watch the Padres game. I was impressed that we were, I don't remember how we did it, but we did it. And so then we, I ended up in Atlanta. We drove, drank the whole way to Atlanta, made it to the Saturday's game, watched Saturday's game, went out Saturday night. By Saturday night, my conscience was like, I, was, I just couldn't keep up, and my conscience was really eating away at me. And so I pretty much stopped drinking Saturday night. Sunday, we went to the baseball game. My friend continued to drink and to drink and to drink. After the baseball game, the Padres lost. I'm still upset about it. They lost the two games out there, but that's irrelevant. Just I'm a Padres fan, and we're used to this. 
So then I fly all the way back, and my friend continues to drink. I'm like, this guy is getting out of control. So I'm going to pretend like I'm asleep. But then when I was pretending like I was asleep, as the stewardess went by, he was ordering drinks for me and for him, and then he would drink my drink. I go, this is a bad plan. So now I'm going to have to be awake. But then as we were awake, I could hear the group behind us. There was a church group like coming out on a mission trip, and there was a pastor and a 17-year-old girl or something behind us talking about what Christ had done in their life. And my friend is getting irate against Christianity now. Like now he's screaming things at the top of his lungs that go against Christianity. And I'm like, dude, shut up, shut up. Like, will you just, like, Lord, will he just pass out? Like praying like these are like, so I think he finally went to sleep or subdued himself or the stewardess maybe gave him a warning. It was pre 9-11. So the line was a little bit wider. We land in San Diego and I'm feeling just old. I'm already feeling very convicted. We got out of the terminal. Another church group is standing at the gate waiting for this church group. And he looks at me and he says, if I hear that guy say, Jesus, one more time, I'm going to go punch him in the face. And I'm like, man, like, you're starting to offend me now. Like, what's wrong with you? And he looked at me. This is like one of my best friends in the SEAL teams. And he said, Gunnar, I believe just like you do. There's a God in everything, but this whole Jesus thing, I totally, like, and at that, it was like he took a dagger in my back and just stabbed. And I remember, like, throwing in the towel, going home that night and saying, okay, I'm done. Like, I remember telling God, it's like, I don't want to quit, but I just can't do this stuff. And seeing this verse about all this stuff, like, very convicting to me, leading up to the fruit of the Spirit. And that was, a, that was like the confrontation, how God confronted me in my hypocrisy. He couldn't, have done, he couldn't have done it any better. Like you can try to convict your spouse, but there's no greater convictor than the Spirit of God. And God worked me over that day. And then we get into the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Now circle that. It's super critical, and most people miss this. See, the deeds of the flesh are, that's plural. Is is a singular way to speak of a collective unit. The deeds of the flesh, or the, de- the fruit of the spirit, there are nine things. It is one composite thing. All of these things together make up one. They are not ours. They are God's. As he works in our life, these things reflect themselves. He says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. When you go to the deeds of the flesh, that list of 12 or however many it is, in every country, just about everywhere in the world, there are laws governing those issues. When you come to the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law anywhere in the world restricting any one of these things. But to be totally honest with you, they drive me crazy. Because I am like a type A German blood. Give me a list and I can check off a list. Drunkenness. Don't be drunk. That's I cannot. Okay. Took me a long time, but I cannot do that anymore. Like that was a list I worked on. All of those other things in the deeds of the flesh, those are clear black and white things. Don't do those. Okay. I'm not going to check those boxes anymore. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, how do you quantify these things? 
Like, how do you measure love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Like, why can't they say, give away five bucks every day to somebody that's like starving? Shake somebody's hand and say hello. They're not, they are very intangible things, but they are very real in your life as God begins working. He continues in verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If, or it should be, I think, since, if you have the NIV, I think it translates since, verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And this walk, it's a military term, which means to be in step. When I was going through Hell Week or BUDS training, SEAL training, one of the things that we had to do that I absolutely hated Six or seven guys had to carry a little rubber boat on our head that it only, as an instructor, it only weighs about 150 pounds. But as a student, when it's banging on your head, it feels like it's about 800 pounds. Secret is, as an instructor, we're putting sand in the, in the back of it as they're running behind them so it gets a little bit heavier. But if you're all walking together in step, the boat will dip when you dip and rise when you rise. But as you're getting run along down the beach, what ends up happening is all of the six guys, their, their step is at different steps. And so when you're going up, that boat is coming down and it like just crushes your neck and it just creates this anger. And I, like, I'll never forget, it was like the last day of hell week and some guy was like screaming and we were like, why don't you just quit? Like our whole camaraderie just ended. We all were trying to get this guy to quit. I'm friends with him now. He made it. He's a seal. But we were so angry because we couldn't get in step. And what Paul is saying here is since you're in Christ, since you have the spirit of God within you, get in step with the spirit. And as Christians, if you have the spirit within you and you're trying to live according to the flesh, what you're going to do is you're constantly bonking your head on that boat because God's spirit was within you and you're going to feel out of sync and you're going to be convicted And so what Paul is saying, get in step with the spirit so that the spirit could take root in your heart. And then verses 26 through 6, 5, this is a practical picture of what the fruit of the spirit looks like as it works itself in our lives. He says, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So this is that picture what Jesus is addressing with the people from Galilee that were killed and the tower that collapsed. Don't start looking at other people and judging them or having envy over them or thinking that their life is better or worse than you for whatever reason. He said that's not how we're to treat one another. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So saying if you're walking with Christ and you see a brother who professes Christ and they're in sin and they're struggling, you don't look and cast judgment on them. What you do is in love and gentleness, you go alongside that person and you restore them back into fellowship. And it says, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each will bear his own load. And I love this. It's as we live our lives, we're to look inward and to seek God and to thank God for our own life. As we see those who are struggling, we're to reach out for them. You'll notice in verse two, it says, bear one another's burdens 
But then in verse 5, it says, each will bear his own load. Seems sort of contradictory to me, if you're asking me. But as I've lived out my life, as I've followed Christ, I've said it in the past that that as a pa- like the greatest thing I've learned in being a pastor is how to be a Christian. Being a pastor, I've learned how to be a Christian. Because as a pastor, I'm like, there are obligations. Like my cell phone, if it rings any time of the day, I don't care what it is. I will answer it. I will respond to a call any time of the day if I'm able to. But in the process of the last few years of living like this, it dawned on me, I'm not doing this because I'm a pastor. I'm doing this because I'm a Christian. And the reason that I respond to a call, the reason I'm available is not because I'm a pastor. It's because Christ has so touched my life and I want to pour out my life into other people's lives. I hope that makes sense. It was revolutionary for me, but like now it's like, oh, maybe one day I'll not be a pastor and I can just be a Christian from what I learned to being a pastor. But the one thing I know about this bearing other people's burdens, as a pastor, you're let into people at the high points and the low points of their life. And when I come to bear, as verse 2 says, to bear another person's burden in the midst of their trial, to help them through that, when I walk away through that, I now have to bear that burden on my own. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I got a bunch, like a couple nods. But as we seek to help other people, as we pour out and invest in other people's lives, we're helping them bear their burden. But when you're invited into that, it's just it's weightful on you. And so as we close, like that's the closing. I finished early, a little bit longer this service. In all of this, I truly believe God wants us to look inwardly, to thank him for this life that he's given, that our attitudes would be that of, of, of just gratitude. And like we, we're celebrating Thanksgiving this week. And I guarantee you, every one of us has so much to be thankful for. Last year, I mentioned the silly thankful game. I won't make us play it. But the thankful game is easy. My wife makes me play it. I never played it before I was married to my wife. And I do like it. You just go through the alphabet. A, something you're thankful for. I have an easy first one. I'm thankful for my wife, Anna. And you just go through the whole alphabet. And you, we can practice being thankful. And as we give thanks to God, it helps us kind of reevaluate how we view things. And so, Father, I do thank you and praise you, Lord, that your love... Um, is far greater than we understand, far greater than we can even comprehend. Lord, as we follow Jesus kind of through the setting of um, coming out of the Pharisee's house and his confronting religion and, and uh, fakeness, Lord, um, Lord, I'm reminded that you want us to walk in humility, to realize that we're just sinners saved by grace. Father, help us to keep our eyes on you, As you bless us, Lord, um, help us never to take our eyes off of the one who blesses us and onto the blessing. Lord, I pray that as we live our lives, um, you would help us to bear fruit that brings glory to you. Lord, show us areas in our life that we need to surrender to you. And if there are people here who have not given their life to you, Father, I pray that you would just help them, Lord, um, to connect those dots, that they would trust you as Savior. Lord, I just thank you for this church body, for the love that's here. Father, I pray that you would help us as a community to continue to honor you with all that we do. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.